Chapter Twelve of A Column of Dust by Evelyn Underhill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Josh Middledorf. Chapter Twelve: A Lecture and a Demonstration. Memento homo, quia puvis es et in puverem revertris. Remember, man, from dust thou comest, and to dust thou must return. Mrs. Reed munched on a biscuit and thought of transcendental things. The resulting sense of beatitude might be attributed in part to the exquisite crispness of a cream cracker, which had come from a newly opened tin, in part to the serenity of spirit which is natural to any woman who is sure that she knows what she means by a categorical imperative. Ra lifted a slate-blue nose from the protective ambush of his tail, and snuffed the air, preserving a judicious mean between appetite and dignity. Helen broke off a small piece of biscuit, offered it to him, and carefully removed the inevitable crumbs from the recesses of his fur frill. Mr. Reed, watching these attentions with the slight sensations of jealousy which they always provoked, said, "'You will spoil that cat, my love. If he were a baby, you could not fuss over him more than you do.' Helen, who was completing Ra's toilette with a brush and a comb, stopped and answered, He has all Egypt in his eyes. What British baby brings such credentials as that? Also, he may come into the room during the lecture, and I prefer that he should look his best. Mr. Reed moved uneasily in his chair and fumbled for the stick at his side. His wife went to him, took each hand firmly in her own, and helped him to his feet with the unemotional precision of a hospital nurse. Twenty past eleven, he said. Your young friends will soon be here. I think I'll be going. The woman who supported him waited patiently until the stick was adjusted to his liking. Then she put one arm about his shoulders, caught up a cushion with her other hand, and led him across the room. There was upon her face the guardian look of a creeping anxiety, an apprehension which has not yet been allowed to attain full consciousness. "'Poor old dear,' she said, "'it seems a shame to turn you out like this, but you will really be more comfortable in the other room. I lit the gas stove and the rug and hot water bottle are all ready. You will feel quite cosy, and as soon as the class is over I shall come and get you ready for lunch.' "'Very good arrangement, very good.' "'Good arrangement indeed,' said the old man, slowly. "'I take my morning nap while you young people have your class. "'What is it? The state of the dead, eh? Oh, "'Very interesting, very interesting indeed. "'I should have enjoyed it if I hadn't been quite so deaf. "'Never do to deprive you of your pleasures, you know. "'You would mope shut up all day with an old fellow like me. "'As it is, we shall both be satisfied.' just as it should be. Helen was by no means sure that she was wholly satisfied. Her husband seemed, she thought, more somnolent, less alert than usual, and she regretted the necessity of immuring him in a gas-warmed room for the rest of the morning. She said to herself that it would certainly lower his vitality, and he must have a little stimulant with his lunch. Also, Mrs. Weatherby had taken a ticket for her lectures, and whilst the growing expenses of beef essence, 
Benger's food, and new-laid eggs forbade her to refuse the two guineas, she feared that they would prove to be hardly earned. Between these diverse anxieties the mood of serenity departed, and the material world surged in upon her with peculiar obstinacy. She was depressed by this exhibition of the power of circumstances, and set about the arranging of chairs, the placing of the ritual glass of water on the table, in a state of mind which, in an inferior woman, might almost have become fussy. Mrs. Weatherby arrived first. She carried a large new notebook and a fat stylographic pen of the kind known as Teddy Bear. Her demeanor struck Mrs. Reed as excessively inappropriate. "'Well,' she said as she entered, "'now I am going to improve my mind "'and find out what you clever people really mean by it all. "'I was determined to come this autumn, last winter, "'when one went out to tea. "'One never knew what the women were talking about. "'Besides, I always like a lecture. "'The questions afterward are such fun. "'Muriel is coming. "'I saw her motor trying to run into an omnibus as I arrived. "'She has got Felix with her.' quite the old-fashioned Calvinistic idea to teach children about hell before they've heard anything about heaven. It is about hell, isn't it? No? Well, it sounds like it. I hope you're not going to show any pictures of those peculiar gods. As it is, I expect the poor child won't sleep for nights. Oh, here they are. Muriel came in, holding Felix firmly by the hand. She said to Helen, You do not mind my bringing him, do you? He has promised to be quite good. Being Saturday, he does not go to kindergarten today. He will not understand. One does not wish it. But I should like him to breathe the atmosphere for a little while. Atmosphere is so important in its influence on the developing mentality of the child. Felix removed his gloves, coat, and cap very carefully, revealing a thin little body clad in a pale green jersey and short serge knickerbockers to match. He cast a searching glance into the corners of the room, peeked under the table, and then said, "'Where is Ra?' Mrs. Reed answered, "'I am afraid that he is asleep just now, in my husband's room,' Felix observed. "'When I am a bigger boy, I shall do like that, and sleep in another room when ladies talk. Father does, and I have quite decided that I am going to be a man, too.' Muriel said hastily. He's a little fractious and disappointed today. Andrew wished to take him to see the royal procession this afternoon, but I preferred that he should stay with me. Children are so easily impressed by mere military display and acquire false standards of greatness. I tell him that when he is bigger he will understand the unimportance of these things. Then he will see more essential beauty in the curves of Darwin's forehead than in a whole regiment of lifeguards. Felix murmured, regretfully, Yes, but not lovely prancy horses and bands and things. I expect Andrew was disappointed too, said Mrs. Weatherby. He enjoys taking the child about him so much. Oh, no, answered Muriel. He gave the ticket to Miss Tyrell. He likes to take her out on Saturday afternoons when he can. She's so very good-natured, and appears to appreciate almost any little expedition of that kind. It's a change for her, of course, after being shut up in that shop all the week. "'You are very unconventional, my dear,' said Mrs. Weatherby. 
I try to be, replied Muriel, simply. The presence of other people prevented Mrs. Weatherby from making the observation which she considered adequate. She therefore contented herself with an inarticulate sound which the more worldly persons present had little difficulty in translating. Miss Tyrell, said Phoebe quickly, is also unconventional, I think, though not perhaps in quite the same way. She is one of those strange and always interesting persons who appear to have no attachments to existence. She wanders in a desert of her own. The truth is, answered Mrs. Weatherby, that none of us knows where she wanders, or, for that matter, where she comes from. It may be a desert, or it may be something very much the reverse. That is the worst of London. In the country such a state of things would be impossible. The vicar would call and find it all out. I've been to her shop once or twice. Pure curiosity, I'm not ashamed of it. There she is, very sensible and businesslike, in an extremely becoming overall. Always on the spot, always attentive, no silly air of, don't forget that I'm a lady. I asked her to tea last week, and she came, talked pleasantly for an hour and a half, and gave me an excellent pattern for a pinafore, economical to cut out, easy to wash, which, I own, surprised me, and when she left, I knew nothing about her, nothing at all. By no means the usual thing with reduced gentlewomen. It was Phoebe who said, One hardly conceives of her as that. Circumstances do not seem to belong to her, nor she to circumstances. She is wholly detached, wholly alone, unless indeed she has links to life of which we know nothing. Well, that is what I sometimes afraid of, replied Mrs. Weatherby. Not that I have any good reason for saying it, but when you find a good-looking woman of that age entirely unattached... It proves, said Muriel, a certain wonderful aloofness from existence. Not always, my dear. Aloofness of that kind may come from cussedness in the young, but it is generally the result of compulsion where it exists in the mature. Phoebe observed very gently, I feel so sorry for her. One divines that she is not really happy in her solitude. Probably she has never made her peace between the spirit and the flesh. Mrs. Reed, at last seeing an opportunity, remarked in her sweetest and most penetrating tone, At best that is but an armistice between irreconcilable foes. Oh, no, I think not, replied Phoebe firmly. That is a mistake which the contemplation of materialism is so apt to induce. But I see more and more of late that spirit in its purest manifestations is bound to express itself by means of the carnal veil. I had not supposed, said Mrs. Weatherby, that Freddie Burroughs possessed such educational genius. There was a general sensation of surprise when it was observed that these words had caused Miss Foster to exhibit a quite commonplace embarrassment. Her pretty face grew pink, and she looked almost maidenly. Muriel, whose rather disintegrated nature contained several kindly patches, said instantly, I think it is so kind of you to go about with him as you do. After all, an uncongenial friendship is bound to tax one's tolerance, exhaust one's spiritual strength. I wonder sometimes whether Miss Tyrell experiences anything of that kind with Andrew. One can hardly suppose that they have much in common. 
If a woman is lonely enough, observed Mrs. Weatherby, she has something in common with the crossing sweeper, but she would be rather surprised if she were told what that something was. Mrs. Reed was glad when the rest of her pupils assembled and the lecture at last began. She had prepared it carefully, and it combined mummies, metaphysics, alchemy, and the Book of the Dead in a very impressive way. Some of the ladies present were puzzled, but all were interested. The Egyptian underworld, said the lecturer in hieratic accents, calls to us for recognition across the chasm of five thousand years, and now, when dogma crumbles under our touch, the eternal realities of the immortal soul's progress and transmutations, the gates through which it passes to the central fire, the crucible whence it emerges to be united with soul its source, appear to us as the most rational of all over-beliefs. Do they? said Mrs. Weatherby as she made her first note. The birth of Horus is for us the birth of the defied soul, for this is the mysterium magnum of existence, the sanction of the great work that Osiris and Horus are truly one. Death is the coming forth of the philosopher's stone from the crucible of life. How joyous a moment when the emancipated soul, purged from its baser elements, breaks forth from its envelope and is delivered into the hands of Toth. The illuminated mind can but hail the deaths of those who it loves with triumph and delight, for there is a sense in which every living being wrapped in matter is but a mummy till death comes to undo the swaddling bands of carnal things. Then will be the beneficent action of salt, sulphur, and mercury, those loving attendants about the fiery sepulchre of the grosser nature. Permit the artist to pour forth the tincture of eternity, and draw out from the furnace the golden Osiris soul, which shall return in its splendor and purity to the ineffable Osiris source. How beautiful, said Muriel. The other ladies sat for the most part with their mouths slightly open. Even Mrs. Weatherby was silenced, for Helen, exalted by her own eloquence, spoke with a dreamy and solemn fervor which her astonishing symbolism did little to impair. When the lecture was at an end and the last of her pupils had departed, Helen fetched a small can of hot water from the bathroom and went down the passage to the little bedchamber in which her husband sat. She heard a faint scratching sound from within, and then a mew. As she opened the door, Ra rushed out and fled to the darkest corner of the corridor, she said in astonishment. Why, what have you done to Ra? He seems quite frightened. Mr. Reed did not reply, and the hiss of the gas stove made the room seem curiously quiet. He sat huddled in his chair, stooping forward a little. His eyes were half open, and his heavy head rested on one shoulder. When she was close to him, his wife saw with horror that his tongue lolled from between his lips. She dropped the little can, and felt the soft warm touch of the water as it poured over her ankles, and soaked the thin thread stockings that she wore. She thought vaguely, "'How stupid of me!' I shall have to fetch a duster, I suppose. But she did not move. She could not, and presently the water spread upon the varnished floor, forming a shining pool which stretched from her feet to those of the corpse. It lay between them like a barrier. She knew that the barrier was an illusion, 
but it represented a Rubicon which she could not cross. End of chapter 12